If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Medicine in America, hosted by Anthony Manson and Todd Harrington, shares the stories of physicians, other healthcare professionals, and industry leaders who are changing the way we deliver care. There's an episode that you should check out called Primary Care Reimagined with Subscription-Based Preventative Care Model. It's an inspiring call for a paradigm shift in primary care. All of their episodes highlight innovative ideas at the forefront of the movement to transform our healthcare system. Check out Medicine in America on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. What does addressing mental health look like? Like really look like? if you're addressing what really matters to people. Here's Michael Bune, the executive director of ACRS, or the Asian Counseling Referral Services, who talks about what they're doing. I think about our Club Bamboo program, which is a socialization and congregate meal program for our older adults. There are older adults that will go get on two different bu buses to get here, take bus for about an hour and a half to two hours for an hour and a half of opportunities to do mahjong, read some newspaper, do Zumba, play pickleball, and have this fresh cooked meal from our kitchen. Hi, I'm Dr. Raj Sundar, a family physician and a community organizer. You're listening to Healthcare for Humans, the show dedicated to educating you on how to care for culturally diverse communities so you can be a better healer. This is about everything that you wish you knew to really care for the person in front of you, not just a body system. Let's learn together. Welcome back. In our last episode, we heard from the founder of ACRS, Asian Counseling Referral Services, Teresa Fujiwara. Today, we're diving deeper into the work of ACRS by introducing you to the current executive director of the organization, Michael Bune. To refresh your memory, ACRS serves the Asian American and Pacific Islander communities in the Pacific Northwest. They're celebrating 50 years of service in 2024. They offer support in over 40 languages, addressing the needs of about 300,000 individuals each year. They believe in a holistic approach, which means extending beyond counseling and mental health services to address other aspects of life including employment and immigration, because we know that can affect mental health too. In this episode, Michael Bune will share his perspective on their work, talking about the solutions they've implemented to tackle mental health challenges in the Asian American and Pacific Islander community. At the core of ACRS's philosophy is the belief that mental health is interconnected with social and physical well-being which I believe in, and likely you do too if you've done this work long enough. They emphasize the importance of addressing all aspects of an individual's life to effectively support their mental health. ACRS has introduced innovative programs like Club Bamboo, which you just heard about, and the Mian Sewing Group, offering peer support and fostering socialization, because we know how much social isolation can affect mental health too. This highlights the significance of going beyond what we call in healthcare as evidence-based practices to what Michael calls best practices that are culturally sensitive and grounded. Here's Michael. Michael, 
Yes. Welcome to the show. We're live at ACRS. This is so Ooh. exciting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks for being here. Tell me about yourself before we get started. Wow, okay. Michael, I'm the Executive Director of Asian Counseling and Referral Service here in Seattle, Washington. And I am an immigrant child. I came to the United States with my mom and dad when I was just a baby in the 70s, along with the wave of Koreans that were coming to the United States and many of them coming here because they are spouses of military individuals. I believe from 1970 to 1990, there were the largest wave of Korean Americans that came to the U.S. And my mother's sisters, both older and younger, married servicemen, and they sponsored us to come to the U.S. One of the interesting things about my family specifically is that when my parents and I immigrated to the U.S., of all places, we landed in beautiful Hawaii. That's one thing. And then the second thing is my father immediately enlisted in the U.S. Army. And after serving the required time in service in Korea, I don't know what possessed him to immediately serve again for another country that he's coming to. So for the first several years of my life as a child, I, I was a military brat, went back and forth from Korea to the U.S. based on where my father was stationed. And the other quick little tidbit about my background is, as much as we are Korean-Americans, part of our family is very American. My brother was born in the U.S. in all places American in Killeen, Texas, and he was also born on all American days, 4th of July. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a family story. Right? Yeah. I guess a couple other quick thing to share is that my family was part of the group of Korean Americans that didn't necessarily come for academics or professional reasons. They came, again, through family sponsorship. The other part, too, is my parents came with very limited background and education. They barely have completed high school. My father had probably a year of college. So coming to the U.S. for the early several years after my father got out of the military, they worked very much menial work. My mom actually worked at a sweatshop, and my father was a cashier at a grocery store. I look back, it's horrifying, but I remember fondly when my father had brought home a tub of ice cream, and I was so excited. And looking back, though, that ice cream tasted a little bit funny because it was past due. And so I think the store had given him this past due ice cream to take back home. And so I think about that as an example of hardship and challenges my parents went through and seeing that through the eyes of a five, six-year-old and then having this opportunity as an adult to look back is truly important for me in the work that I do each and every day here at ACRS and why I've committed to work in community. Yeah, it forms so much of your life purpose. I feel like the stories and the experience that you had growing up especially in your story about seeing your parents suffering. Yeah. We just interviewed somebody from the Korean community services and we talked about all the different immigration waves. Mm. And this happens so much with different immigrant communities yeah. where we have such a narrow perspective of who's here from that community. Yes. yes, that's one thing too, in terms of what time, this period that you arrived under what circumstances. The other interesting thing that I would offer here now is that Given the work that we've been doing in community, more and more we think about those who hold intersectional identities. And so 
One thing I recently learned about is Korean adoptees. I mean, they, in terms of the immigration, if they were adopted and came here, they were equal in terms of numbers. I think there were like over 200,000 Korean adoptees that came to the U.S. and perhaps also in Europe, where it was from 1970 and on for 60 years, we had a wave of transracial adoptees from Korea. And so their lived experience and the, the way that they walk the world is very different from an immigrant who came with family and their identity and their cultural identity, their connection to community is so different. And so one thing I think about even at a community behavioral health center like ours is that they come to us and we find out from their um, intake form they're Korean. But I think it's so incredibly important to take a pause to not to jump to conclusions like, are they first generation immigrant? Are they second generation immigrant? They may also be a transracial adoptee and their experience and their initial uh, moment touch point in connecting with someone, especially around such an important set of care, like around mental health and other uh, behavioral health services that can make or break that relationship. Yeah, I agree. Going, taking that next step, not yep. just that you're Korean, but when did you come or yep. what is your background with that ethnicity or your background? Yeah. And how do you identify with that label? Yep. It's such yep. an important part of this conversation. So let's, you mentioned ACRS. Yeah. Tell me about ACRS and specifically what communities you care for. Yeah. So ACRS is Asian Counseling and Referral Service, and this year we are celebrating our 50th year of service in community. And we started out in the 70s as a response to the fact that many community members were being misdiagnosed and inappropriately institutional. When I was back in Cleveland working with the Asian community at a similar organization, we had an incident where a family had a child who was taken away by Child Protective Services at school. One of the teachers had noticed there were these round circular marks on their backs. And because that school was not understanding that this was uh, a form of cupping, which is a traditional uh, med uh, approach to healing in, in many Asian communities, this family was thrusted into this chaotic period where the parents and the child was separated. So, I mean, that's one clear example. It still happens, unfortunately. You would think after 50 years of service that these things in terms of misunderstanding would not happen, but it continues to. And part of that is this recognition that there's also differences based on geography and areas around the country or whether you're in a suburban area with limited access to diversity. These things have important factors in terms of how prepared the system is to care for individuals. ACRS um, has been in community for 50 years, and we're a multi-service organization serving in 40 different languages and meeting people's needs over 30,000 each and every year. The way that we think about our work at ACRS is this idea of whole care and holistic approach right? And part of that is this recognition that there are many factors associated with how individuals' mental health and well-being shows up. And part of that is if they are having struggles with employment or if their immigration status is in question, 
or they're not interacting well with their children who have become westernized and those children are navigating multicultures in trying to get through life. That's the type of things we are addressing at our organization and recognizing there are these different elements of how people show up and making sure that we can care for them in the best way possible, along with their family members. Yeah. And what would you consider Asian communities? And is that inclusive of everybody that's part of the quote unquote Asian label? Yeah. So our communities come from all parts of Asia. We have those also who are not Asian. We have individuals as far west in terms of Afghanistan. And we have folks from South Asia, Asian Indian individuals. We have Nepali. We have Cham, Mien, ethnic groups in parts of Southeast Asia. We have East Asian community members also represented. The other thing, too, here in the Pacific Northwest, we do have a very large Pacific Islander community. So we have folks representing Guam, those from Samoa, and those individuals are also part of our client base. And more and more, we are also connected with our Native Hawaiian communities. Thanks, Michael. Let's dig into mental health. You mentioned this just briefly about holistic and whole person health. Because I want to combine that with what I often experience and I hear other people experience, the stigma around mental health in Asian communities. What does the community think of as healthy in terms of mental health? And how do we reduce the stigma around talking about mental health? Yeah, I'd like to use the example of my family and I'm going to use myself first and then talk about my mother. When I pursued mental health services. This was late in my life in my 20s. And it was a time when I was going through major transitions, moving from the Pacific Northwest to Ohio. Uh, Following love, my partner was from Ohio. And during the first few years was difficult time for me just adapting and adjusting to new life in the Midwest. And so this was the first time I've actively pursued um, support in terms of my mental health well-being. One of the things that really struck me is each step in terms of uh, making that decision to pursue mental health services, making that call, scheduling that first um, appointment, each of those moments, I think individuals in the community can make a decision not to pursue. So as you can imagine, there are all these barriers that general people confront. Imagine if you are a person who is an immigrant who in their culture, in their background, uh, mental health is seen as you don't talk about it, right? And when I pursued my mental health, and part of what I think about too is because in many ways I talk about it from a perspective of being an American accessing mental health services, but I have to also acknowledge that I navigate two cultures. And even now as an adult, that shows up. And I recall that first moment where going into therapy and I didn't know what to expect and the conversation went okay. And then at the tail end, the therapist was suggesting or offering me medication. I think they had good intentions, noticed that there were symptoms of depression or anxiety that had manifested that they wanted to help with some of the immediate physical impact of my mental health stresses that I was experiencing. But looking back, I thought, It took me that long to get there and immediately 
providing me medication in some ways saying that you have a problem. And so I find that I use myself as an example to just de- illustrate that in our communities, like in my own family's case, like with my mom recently who had a, a very devastating physical health scare during the holidays last year where she had, we weren't sure if she was going to make it. And through a lot of support and intervention uh, during her care and hospitalization, we were able to get her out and at home. I, but one of the interesting things that I recognize and others in our family recognize is that there was this initial kind of euphoria, like the first couple of days she felt, okay, I'm home, I'm feeling better. But then it was quickly was deteriorating. And part of what, as the older son, I was thinking through is like, there's something else going on beyond the physical element that she's experiencing. And um, there were so many moments that I've attempted to even push the envelope on do you think you want to talk to someone? And there would never be a response. So part of what I wanted to illustrate there is like those conversations are very intimate and sensitive and even among family members to expect someone who is an immigrant um, or from a different culture who's navigating that culture to come into a clinical environment you got to take it very slowly and with a lot of care and thought in the way that you navigate. So one of the things that we've learned here at ACRS is that there are a lot of folks in terms of their readiness to seek formal mental health services. They're just not there. And there is a very important gap where organizations like ours are filling and also other organizations that are not your traditional behavioral health community health centers that are filling, which is creating a space where people can connect with people, their peers, because most often than not, they're actually very supportive and help them through a lot of things that don't necessarily make it to um, a crisis level of where they need to seek care. So um, that's something that I think about a lot in terms of our approach in our communities. There's these embedded assets in ways of doing and supporting, how do we meld that with our Western approaches to care around mental health? Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. So your own story yeah. and your mom's, I think yeah. people, it'll help people understand a little bit more yeah. about specifically what you're talking about. It makes me think of how do people name and acknowledge what they're going through, mm-hmm. right? The first step is acknowledging there's something happening here, yep. right? In my body, in my mind. Yep. And then naming it. And in both of those instances, I think the traditional healthcare system sometimes approaches us, we know what's going on with you, let us help you, and here's what you need to do. When people either aren't ready or they don't want to name it the same way. Going back to, just because it's a common experience for me, and you can tell me a little bit more about this too, that people's experience of mental health sometimes presents in their body. This happens in refugee communities specifically. But also in many uh, East Asian and Southeast Asian communities, I can speak for my own Indian community too, is that acknowledging what's happening and then naming it. Do you have any response to how do you do that appropriately? I know what I heard from you right now is you have to be patient, (laughs) one. And then using a group of peers is helpful to acknowledge, hey, it's not me by myself going through this. But as a community, we all experience some of this. Yes. And there's some normalization there. Yeah. 
Yes. Thanks for that question. And I actually was thinking about this question as I was driving here. And what can a clinician do in terms of building rapport and relationship and understanding that the healthcare system is strained and providers are doing the best they can with very limited resources and time. And I think there's some value as much as time is always a a commodity (laughs) in the healthcare system to get things done and then move on. I think there is some important value on the front end to take that extra time with a patient to say, tell me more about yourself. That would be helpful for me to know so that I can serve you well. And even taking the additional five to 10 minutes on that front end with that very first interaction will mean that down the road as you're um, um, treating this individual during their stay or dur- under under your care, you have enough d- additional data points to f- support them in the way that they want to be supported even better and s- perhaps also prevent mishaps down the road where you didn't have enough context or understanding that individual's background that takes up additional wasted time. So that's um, something that I think about a lot is like sometimes slowing down even for that additional time, uh, will result in better care and more efficient care um, at the end of the day. There's this whole area of work in public health around social determinants of health and its impact on overall physical health and mental health well-being. One of the providers who was speaking was talking about this around how important it is in, if uh, to understand social determinants of health uh, to actually address efficiencies in health and some of those drivers around cost and other things. And she was an oncologist who had um, worked in the inner city and she had been working um, very carefully with this individual who was a single mom, who um, was of limited means, and working through a care plan with her to come in for regular treatment. Super excited, thought she had addressed all the barriers and obstacles, and then got her appointment set up to come in. And certainly there was a whole team of folks that had to be coordinated in order to get that appointment together. She didn't show up. And so the clinician was really distraught and and sad, like all this work and this patient wasn't able to come. And so in probing deeper, she was at a point with this patient where she had good relationships to ask comfortably what happened. And it was childcare. And uh, so when she shared that this patient, main reason was childcare and it would cost her money to come in, she had to make this very critical decision about uh, paying for that or not. And if healthcare systems recognize paying childcare for four hours or something for someone to get treatment versus all those clinical team members that spent all that time putting together a treatment plan, I think it's pretty clear to me where the value is. And so that's something I think about a lot. Yeah, addressing mental health also means addressing people's social health. Yes. I feel like ACRS does that yes. well. You think about, hey, what about employment? Yeah. What about loneliness? Yep. Do we have groups like all of those? And in this specific situation, as you mentioned, what is the cost effectiveness of yep. providing somebody childcare versus missed appointments? Yep. Four team members, including social worker, case yeah, yeah. manager, right? Yeah. Everybody's time. And what is that? Yeah, the social help and the social component that our organization does is incredibly important, if not most important, because 
it's preventative, right? And I think about our Club Bamboo program, which is a socialization and congregate meal program for our older adults. There are older adults that will go get on two different buses to get here, take bus for about an hour and a half to two hours for an hour and a half of opportunities to do mahjong, read some newspaper, do Zumba, play pickleball, and have this fresh cooked meal from our kitchen that is culturally appropriate. That day for that individual, just taking that journey to come to our Club Bamboo program means that person is not isolated and emotionally alone. They're able to connect with peers. They're able to learn new skills. They're able to keep their brain active and also keep their body healthy with that fresh prepared meal. We understand that. That's the thing that I love, the fact that we understand how those different pieces of the work that we do are connected in order to ensure that the person is well and continue to be well. Yeah, and people do struggle with how to address social isolation. And it's not just about the gathering. It's also about the activities that yes. matter to folks. Mm-hmm. And it's fun, like Mahjong and I love pickleball. Yeah. Right? So I'll show off. Yeah. <laughs> but going back to the your experience that you talked about with yourself and your yeah. mom, you acknowledging something's happening in your body, you go to seek care. Sometimes healthcare names it differently than you do. Yeah. And then I think this is worth call- calling out because a lot of healthcare systems are doing this. You said you're feeling down and I think maybe you have depression. Yeah. The next step is a questionnaire. Yeah. And then best case scenario, I'll give you a translated questionnaire yeah. in Korean because we need to categorize it as major depression yeah. with or without severe features yeah. Yeah. and suicidal ideation. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And people are moving towards that because our entire healthcare system, mm-hmm. including our nation uh, now is around value-based systems. We yeah. use the metric of questionnaires yes. and put a number to it. And then we want to see that number go down. Yes. How does that approach work? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it is um, the system that we are part of. And unfortunately, we can't just toss it and we have to work through it. And for folks, I think for our clinicians and other providers who are doing this really incredible work, even just that recognition alone is powerful that there are limits to this approach and the importance of integrating it with other aspects of understanding that client or that patient's. And it's not easy because I think there's a lot pushing against the providers in terms of pressure. And at the same time, I think we should continue to press the healthcare system as a whole that there's opportunities to um, integrate uh, different approaches that help patients get well. And so part of that is understanding things such as complementary medicine being an important part of providing care in a holistic way, looking at not just evidence-based practices, but best practices, culturally-based practices as important elements of um, an array of services or approaches and treatment that can help an individual. I love that framing of it's just not evidence-based practices, it's also best practices. And maybe this will help us transition into treatment. So after we identify, have that conversation about mental health, there's depression, anxiety, it can be whatever. Often the next step is medications (laughs) or one-on-one therapy. Tell me how you would approach it. I do think that it works for some folks. It depends on where you are and your understanding around Western medicine. For folks who are second generation, 
individuals or those who are of mixed race background that have family and culture that they've accustomed to understanding Western medicine, I think that they're in a better place to feel that's okay to have one-on-one therapy and then medication. For those who are not, I mean, like my parents, where I don't think, to be quite honest, my mom is in her late 70s. I don't know if she will ever go to therapy. And I don't know if she will ever take medication. So does that mean it's it's wrong that they're not doing it right? Who knows? So there's this big piece around generational that I think about. I don't have an easy answer to that. Although I will say that peer experience has an incredibly important impact on adoption, and especially among our older family members. They talk a lot. My mom is on the phone with her friends all the time. So it's every time I try to call, it's like she's on the call with someone else or her friends. So that says something. There are already assets built into a community or that individual is accessing That is not a bad thing. There may be instances where that is what you continue to encourage as a clinician to the extent that you want to also help them in other ways to suggest that's great or reinforcing that's great. Like you're talking with your friends, your family members about how you're feeling and is that helping you? Is that making you feel better? I think those are really important questions to ask. And so the piece that we've been really successful in understanding, and these are all culturally centered approaches, is groups do work well in certain instances. And we have this Mian sewing group, women sewing group that meet together on a regular basis. And these Mian women are refugees that came here and came from a lot of trauma. Some of them are survivors of domestic violence. Some of them have seen their loved ones being murdered. Um, So this sewing group is premised on not group therapy, but it's these people who have common skills and interests that they come together to just sew some items and talk with each other. The facilitator is also from that community and recognizes he or she has that formal training and understanding what approaches to treatment and at the same time taking the lead of the group in where they are to see where there are opportunities to bring up questions to support in that conversation for group therapy, right? So very thoughtfully navigating culture, understanding, and knowing. Also, there's like generational dynamics. Our therapist may be younger, and then you have a group of older men, women. So just recognition of that. And that's really unique, and that's very difficult to replicate if you're not from that community. So I have this wonderful little banner, this colorful little banner that I use. The scarf is one of the items that were made from the chum members. And every time I look at it, I think about how much they've come along in terms of their progress of healing. And you can tell food that your mom makes, right? If it's off, you know something's going on. And it's the same when people are putting their love into these beautiful tapestries and blankets and scarves, you know that they are on the path to healing. Yeah, I I love that. Because going back to this framing of evidence-based practices, of, hey, you mean group CBT, cognitive (laughs) behavioral therapy? Is that what you're doing, Michael? Can you actually say that? (laughs) And you're talking about, hey, manifestation of love in this artwork. Yes, yes, yes. And healing can look like that. It doesn't have to be this one way we think about it. I'm sure there's some amount of storytelling that's often true, making 
sense of what you've been through, mm. but also being cognizant of you don't have to keep bringing up your trauma to mm. heal. Because mm-hmm. I, I think sometimes that happens too where we had somebody from the charm community, but imagine you've been through any form of trauma, especially as a refugee. Yeah. And sometimes it's generational. Yes. Think about the Khmer community. Yep. They're not going to talk about the Khmer Rouge yep. to their children or anybody, but there's probably a way to still meet them where they are at yeah. to help them heal. I wonder if there's experience around that too. Like, how do you incorporate storytelling in a way that centers the community? Because we don't want to keep bringing up trauma, especially if there's not a clear way of healing. Yeah, thank you for that. And this piece around intergenerational trauma and generational trauma are, are real, right? Because... We have uh, different parts of our community that are multi-generational families. There are situations where even the young child or the young adult may be born here in the U.S. They are experiencing, for example, in the Khmer community, the experience of the Khmer Rouge and the impact on uh, so many people in that country being de- being murdered. That carries on. Even though they didn't personally experience it, they feel it in the each and every day when they're interacting with their family members who have. So I think that's something that's really important that this vicarious trauma experience, even if it's not named, just seeing their family members, their parents or grandparents experiencing this trauma, and then just trying to put words to it. And it's not easy. And sometimes there's no way to put words in it. You just feel the the trauma and you experience that. Yeah. Are there any specific recommendations or advice you would offer for those communities? Yeah, I I think about the work that we've been doing around intergenerational community building and intergenerational leadership building as important community-level strategies that help. And I, I mean, even use myself as an example that there were times growing up, especially as a teenager, where I just didn't understand my parents and uh, they didn't understand me. And certainly I wasn't the black sheep in the family. My brother was who had a far uh, worse situation in that relationship. But the frustration and part of that is this both sides want to say something, but they just don't have the words, literally words to communicate to each other. And so This idea in community, like when we are addressing issues around safety or we are addressing issues around being civically engaged, uh, we are seeing more and more these models where young people are, you know, working with older folks around how to register to vote or organizing them to go out. Those are moments I think there's clarity in terms of the connections and the sense of fulfillment that both sides feel. And so I I strongly am a a believer in this. If there are opportunities like even addressing safety, is there an opportunity, especially if our vulnerable older adults, for example, here recently in the South Seattle area, we've been seeing some unfortunate series of home invasions and assaults. And it is looking like it's mainly targeting Asian community members or older adults, including Somali older adult members. And I think about even growing up as a child where my family and a lot of Asian families that I've seen, when they come home, their doors are closed and their curtains are shut. There's something to be said about getting to know your neighbors. What does it mean in the way that we would do as Americans? You know, getting together, bringing them over some 
cookies and then having conversations or having a grill out. And also, depending on in which community, if you're feeling this fear, if you're an older adult and you think every young adult is a threat, right? That perpetuates these really dangerous environments where community can't come together. And if you see young people as loved and they have wonderful things to offer, where an older adult can ask a young person for assistance to carry her bags, right? That's incredibly powerful. You only need one or two of those moments to create this groundswell of just changing the systems and structures that are impacting how people interact with each other. And so I think there's so much in terms of opportunities where community-based approaches to some of the issues and challenges that our neighborhoods face. Yeah, and this is all relevant to yes. mental health. Yes. Offering people some hope, too, that sometimes it, all it takes is those few moments. Yeah. To build that community and feeling like both young people are loved and elders are honored. Yes. I feel like that's a missing piece, too, as we're all changing, culture's changing. Yes. And you said the generational divide. This yeah. feeling of elders get honored as they get older yeah. is slowly being lost. And yes. I think that can be hard, too. Yeah, I agree. It goes both ways. And I think you're onto a really important point in terms of like when we're seeing all these challenges in front of us, what is the way for us to also not be scared anymore, be stressed out about our safety? I think part of it is just expanding our imagination as a community and also as an individual, if you're an older adult or a young person, expand your imagination about what the solutions are to these kinds of issues. Like get to know an older adult get to know a young adult, learn about them. I think that's something that we are becoming less and less active in doing. And I don't know why. And that's an interesting thing in terms of during the time that I was growing up, I, I don't recall having these, these barriers or tensions in getting to know different people. Certainly there's a part of me where I was a lot more of an extrovert as a little kid, but at the same time, that was so easy. And why is it so difficult? All true. I think going back to treating mental health, it is important and clearly a big piece of mental health is involving family members. It's a bit of a shift, but related to how do we approach the generational divide when we're talking about these issues? And how do you involve family members in a way that holds true to our understanding of what privacy means mm -hmm. at the individual level, yeah. but also bringing the family for decision making? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think about couples therapy. I don't know if that would necessarily work with my parents. And it could be just their personality. But at the same time, if I were to think about other Korean couples, older couples, I don't think that is a preferred approach to solving issues and challenges. There is this element that I also think about now as an adult child where I'm called upon now more and more, either from my dad or from my mom, to take an active role in healthcare needs for them. And so that's interesting because I think first when they were younger in their 20s and 30s in Korea, um, alternative complementary medicine was a real important primary focus for healing. But as they have acculturated and have spent more and more time in the United States, I think they are at a place they recognize and appreciate the value of Western medicine. And in fact, I think part of it has also driven how they've survived because their parents didn't survive past 60 and now they're in their 70s. So there's something to be said about that. 
In situations where you are caregiving for older adults, providing care, I think their adult children are really important. And also recognizing there's like a hierarchy, even in adult children's, who should the provider work with, right? And more often than not, there's like this patriarchal approach where the oldest son is the one to go to, or in some instances, in some communities, oldest child period, whether it's a woman or a man, right? And so that's something that I think is worth further exploring before you go down the path and inviting other family members to partake in care. The other thing too is there may be situations where families just don't have good, strong relationships with each other where that just isn't appropriate. And so that's something to further evaluate. And so one of the things I've noticed is my partner is white from Wisconsin and it's he is so close to his parents. He's so close to his cousins. Every time we get together, they, they're all there. They'll fly out from the Midwest to come here. And my family is, I have to drag my brother kicking and screaming to come to a dinner for my mother's birthday. And for some reason, I have to do this culture shift because that is the way it's been. If it was strictly Korean, it's that's how it was. And then really avoiding not to put a Western frame on it and be upset. Yeah. So those are things I think are really important to evaluate too, is in terms of connection and closeness. In some instances, I do feel like family members may not be the best supporter in a situation with a patient. It may be their very close friend who is a better person to be involved in. I think that's a takeaway point because in larger health systems, when only part of your population is, let's say, Korean. Yeah. There's a tendency probably to stereotype more. Yeah. Hey, family's always going to yep. be involved in these situations. Yep. Oh, they're Korean? Let's yeah. bring in their sons in here. Yep. While you're doing this work, you understand that's part of it, but you still have to treat every family and person as an individual. Yeah. So you first is understand, and then you have to be open yep. to, to the individual in front of you because yep. it could not be true for them. Yeah. The one other thing that I would bring up in this conversation is around medication adherence or any treatment adherence issues. Um, the thing that I've noticed about my mom in recent case um, with her health scare over the holidays is that there are times because the medication is so toxic, she'll just stop. And so the, the thing that I worry about is if she's communicating clearly to her provider and so that's one thing that I think about, especially with older parents, like for my parents, like verifying and validating. If they give me permission to have conversation with the provider just to make sure and then have a side conversation with her after to say, I know that you don't feel good with this medication, but you should talk with your doctor about what the consequence or the impact is. What are the options so that you know that you're going to harm yourself further? The other thing too is that there was a period that I thought about the provider being of community who speaks the language being an important part of that. And certainly from a primary care provider perspective, having that day-to-day -day interaction with a healthcare provider who speaks the language is definitely an important piece because a lot of important details are covered in language with, with the patient, like in my mom's case and my father's case. Once they get to a place where they have specialists that they do have to see it's not as easy to match up with a provider, a specialist who has that language background. And I don't know the answer to that, but it does become a little bit more difficult to coordinate care or to understand what the diagnosis was. 
And in my case, there's been many instances I would look at the um, the review of the clinic visit and I'm translating for my father using Google Translate and it's works okay, but it's not sufficient, right? And so I think about that too. Not to say there should be an answer, but those are some areas or barriers that we do face. And um, thinking about that in the mental health environment, um, if their situation is one of a very severe mental health illness and like thinking about the options, especially if institutionalizing is one of those options and things, you do need to get others involved so that they could help family members or friends involved to help them navigate and understand why this is important. Yeah, both of those points I want to acknowledge. First is the medication adherence. Yeah. I'm a big proponent of asking non-judgmentally, which is sometimes people approach it as saying, you're taking all your medications, right? There's clearly one answer to that, especially coming from an Asian culture where the doctor is supposed to be the authority. Yeah, "Yeah, of course I am. You told me to. Yeah, I've been taking it every day. Versus me asking... Many people don't take the medications I give them. So yeah. tell me how often you're taking it. When do you take breaks? Yeah. And then let's talk about how do we make this sustainable for yeah. you? And then you're like, yeah, I don't take it during the full moon. I don't know. I'm just, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Some people say yeah, things yeah. like that, right? Yeah. But you get that honest response. Yeah. And you can't really go anywhere unless you get real honest responses. For yep. And you have to meet them where they're at. Yeah, exactly. Just the framing of the question differently, right? Um, invites the individual to share more. I think that's incredibly powerful and it takes practice, right? And especially if you're a new provider coming in, it's going to take a little bit of trial and error and wisdom of all the other folks around you to help support you. And the second point about specialist, I feel like I've had instances where I've had multiple visits about something that's bothering the patient, like the knee, and they send them to a specialist and the specialist says, they told me it's not bothering them that much. You didn't listen. They're, that's how they communicate. They're yeah. a bit stoic. Yep. You're going to do the exam and they're not going to respond. Yep. But trust yeah. me, they're in pain. Yeah. That part of communication, whether it's unsaid or language, I'm not sure, but it gets dropped. Yeah, I think so. And there's many instances like there are certain words that are not available or degrees of if you're talking about pain, like there's only certain number of ways that are expressed in a culture. And then when it's translated, it, it was just say, it's okay it's really painful in reality, right? And so that is definitely very important to understand. And so in many instances, I hope that in healthcare systems, it's not that you have a whole variety of folks coming through, depending on locality or geography, you may have a large percentage that are Chinese or large percentage that are Vietnamese and having opportunity to interact with those patients on a regular basis, you build up more proficiency and understanding and how to navigate. And understand when they say something, what it means, right? Do you have any expert tips on working with interpreters in this situation? (laughs) Because part of, I think interpreters are supposed to be cultural navigators, depending on how much freedom we give some interpreters and interpreters bring their own experiences to it too. Uh, Yeah. So first, I'm sure systems are are well aware and appreciate this, not using a family member. There were instances when I was uh, like a seven-year-old, I'm doing interpreting for my mom at a healthcare um, appointment. So certainly that's not that's not the approach to go. And short of that, I think that the interpreting services practice and field has gotten better and better where there's credentialing and medical interpretation services uh, where they go through tr- a very extensive training in language to make sure that they are doing 
translating in a way that is helpful in a system. But having said that, we've had instances like when the Burmese community started to arrive here as refugees or when the Nepali community started to arrive here as refugees. You had also a, a situation where the interpreting services um, didn't have enough of those community members in interpreting services or the folks that were coming with them as refugees who had some level of English proficiency were serving as interpreters. And there was a period where it was a struggle and there's no easy answer. Do you hire that one um, medical healthcare certified interpreter who speaks Nepali from 300 miles away to come and do interpreting? And so that is a really challenging situation. And so if anything, I think in communities like the Burmese community and the Nepali community, they've been here long enough now where there is a larger pool of folks that have gone through certification that uh, make them capable. But the thing to be aware of is if you do have immediate new arriving refugee groups as healthcare systems, as providers, to just be more attentive in recognizing that there will need to be some interpretation on your end in observation, body language to determine what the patient is going through. Exactly. And this can get complex, especially with mental health, yes. because that interpreter oh, yeah. could be from your community. Yes. And if it's a small community, it's your neighbor. Yeah. And you're like, no, I don't want an interpreter. Yeah. You say, no, you need an interpreter. Yep. So there's some gray area and being careful about unintended consequences with healthcare systems. Yeah. And we say, no, always medical interpreter, no matter what the patient yep. says. And that, that intentionality, as you're saying, observing in this situation, do we need to do it this way? Yeah. And I think this is tricky because I think there you offer a, a suggestion here in turn. You offer an instance where it could be a, a neighbor who's interpreting and the provider could initially on this doing the intake say, do you know this person from as a, for, are, there will always be an instance where that person is afraid to say yes. So I think that's something to be uh, very attentive to. The other part too, even for trying to get someone who is doesn't have a conflict is difficult because like in the case of the Hmong community, the family members here in Washington state have relatives in Ohio or in Fresno. And if you were to use a language line or interpreting services, there's a good chance they're somehow related. So I think it's very real. And so there's no easy answers, but it's at least a recognition that those things will happen. I'm going to shift to talking about the diversity of experiences mm -hmm. in the Asian American Pacific Islander community. We initially talked about the Pacific Islander community. Um, when you're talking about initiatives like Club Bamboo, how do we ensure that the services that we're designing especially as a large group as Asian American yep. Pacific Islander group is, are inclusive of those communities who hold completely different cultures. Mm. And the second part related is the intersectionality of yep. communities too. We're yep. talking about LGBTQ plus community. Yeah. Thanks for that question. As it relates to the Club Bamboo program, which serves our older adults, our Club Bamboo Congregate Meal and Socialization program is housed here at Asian Counseling and Referral Services Building. But we also partner with different ethnic communities across the county so that they can organize their own congregate meal and socialization and wellness program. So that means that we are partnering with the Samoan community. We are partnering with the Korean community, the Filipino community, where they are replicating similar programs 
in their own respective ethnic communities. And so part of that is that for Club Bamboo, there are individuals, it is pretty multi-ethnic, people of different communities, Vietnamese, Chinese, and others will come to Club Bamboo because that's a place that they feel comfortable in being in that multi-ethnic environment. We also have to recognize and honor that some folks feel more comfortable being with other community members where language isn't a barrier, where they can socialize. Options is a really important approach to understanding how to provide healing and supportive care that improves people's mental health well. As it relates to intersectional communities, I think that part of where our organization is recognizing is that the, the large wave of Asians and Pacific Islanders are not there anymore. I mean, the wave of immigrants and refugees coming from those areas are not, not as large, um, not as free. And as a community as a whole, we are becoming more and more acculturated. We're becoming more quote, Americanized. And the area that we think about as an organization providing behavioral health and social services is like, where, where are the needs? Where, and one of the things that was interesting is that during the pandemic, people who were seeking services were more and more American-born, those who are of mixed, mixed background. And those who hold other identities, whether they are transracial adoptees or LGBTQIA+. So I think that is something that we need to understand as an Asian-specific, Asian Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander-specific organization that our communities are evolving, especially those who are seeking services, mental health services and others. They are more reflective of these complex um, identities, these intersectional identities, where it's not your traditional first-generation immigrant refugee um, where they may be experiencing more of the transition of culture and other issues. The issues that the those who are coming to us explicitly identify themselves with intersectional identities um, are more complicated. Like with our LGBTQIA plus individuals, they're dealing with the stresses associated with being a minority within the the predominantly white queer community and having to um, navigate with family members where being gay is not okay, right? And so that that requires, um, in our situation with workforce, the tools that we use and also prioritizing and inviting more clinicians and providers that have that experience or lived experience that could be important in the treatment of care. Thank you. Any other learnings or insights you've had over the years about supporting this community and their mental health needs that you want to share with others? I really have enjoyed this conversation. I think that I've covered a lot of different areas. And if there was just one takeaway that I could offer to close out this conversation is that just this idea of leading with great care and empathy and curiosity is a really important uh, cultural competency practice. You don't have to be of that community, but if you practice those areas, I think you will make deep connections with your patients to support them in their health and well-being. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks again, everyone, for joining me on another episode, Healthcare for Humans. If you like this episode, as always, my ask to you is please share it with one other person and go to healthcareforhumans.org to sign up to be part of the community. And lastly, 
Thank you to Tessa Chu for supporting this podcast, making sure it's the best it can be, and helping with the creation and the production of all parts of this podcast. Thanks again. I'll see you next time. If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Medicine in America, hosted by Anthony Manson and Todd Harrington, shares the stories of physicians, other healthcare professionals, and industry leaders who are changing the way we deliver care. There's an episode that you should check out called Primary Care Reimagined with Subscription-Based Preventative Care Model. It's an inspiring call for a paradigm shift in primary care. All of their episodes highlight innovative ideas at the forefront of the movement to transform our healthcare system. Check out Medicine in America on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.